0: The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Y'all could be seated. We're going to continue to memorize and look at that today as we wrap up this three-week series looking at six verses. Again, kind of intense, kind of a uh, look into the most popularly quoted, most often recognized of all of the 150 Psalms. And he commences the Psalms by talking as if he is a shepherd, as if God is a shepherd using this metaphor for us to kind of get our arms around it a little bit. And I think it's very helpful. Even though I know we don't live in an agrarian culture, hopefully we can put our arms around the idea of being led and us following and us being sheep and us hopefully stepping in line. That's how he commences the the Psalm 23. But he he concludes the Psalm by not a shepherd metaphor, but more of a banquet metaphor. So he kind of starts one way and he ends another way. And I think it's intentional. And uh, obviously it's intentional, it's inspired by God, but it's intentional in the sense that he gives us a little two imageries, but we're going to kind of marry them together. And you don't separate one from the other just because they're two different metaphors. They actually fit beautifully together. And the fact that, as we looked at last week, when the Lord is our shepherd, there are no free passes, all right? It doesn't mean... If the Lord is your shepherd, you will not have any pain. It does say that you will not want. That means that you're not going to be lacking, that whatever you need for whatever you're going through, you're going to have it. If the Lord's your shepherd, if you're following him and he is calling the shots in your life. Uh, it does not mean, however, that there are free passes around struggles, around the shadow of the valley of death or, or around death valley. You, you will not get free passes. In fact, there may be times, and hear this out, there may be times that God actually may lead you in to the valley of the shadow of death. He actually may lead you in and allow you to experience some very difficult times. But he concludes this passage by bringing another metaphor to the, to, to the, uh, to the scene about a banquet, about a table, about an anointing, about, about a feast, about this whole idea of dwelling in a house. He brings it to another different perspective. And as the Lord, here's where it all begins and here's where it all ends. As the Lord is your shepherd, and as you go by, sometimes there's going to be streams of water, sometimes it's going to be green pastures, other times it's going to be the valley of the shadow of death. But regardless of where He leads you, He is with you. Where God guides, He provides. Just mark it down. You can go back to Psalm 23, bank it, stick it a stake in the ground, and put it point back to this life principle right there. Where God guides, He provides. If God leads you through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? He's with you in the valley of the shadow of death. We just said it. We just quoted His rod and His staff will comfort us. He is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. So whatever it is that you have been experiencing, somebody met me just after the service in the first gathering and told me their story of what they're walking through right now, their valley of the shadow of death. And that is real for some of you because you're experiencing that whether it's the loss of whatever, whether it is experiencing pain or betrayal or whatever. Pain is a part of life. But what we have to figure out, what we have to learn is that as the Lord is our shepherd leading us through these painful experiences, shadowy experiences, death-like experiences, that we still have him throughout every single one of those experiences. Oswald Chamber says it well when he says it like this is it is the most natural thing in the world to be scared. Think about that. It's the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence of God's grace is at work in our hearts is when we do not get into panics. Now, some of y'all, that immediately struck a chord with you. Because you live in panic mode, all right? Your 911 is the middle of your name. Uh, you live in fear. You live in panic. You li- live wondering about what ifs. And it cripples you. It paralyzes you. It's a natural thing, all right? But we're not living natural. We're living supernaturally. Let's keep reading. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, this is the idea of respecting God you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. You will fear streams of living water. You will fear so much about life. And here's what we've got to come and, and just rustle down. When you're in those dark valleys, you don't have very much to hang on to. In fact, some of the things that you've been hanging on to for your security in life are no longer there to hang on to. That relationship. That career path, your five year plan just got nixed. You, you, your, your health just got a bad diagnosis. You understand what I'm saying? Everything you've been holding on to now is gone. So, what are you going to do in that dark moment? Is you're going to find something else to hold on to. So, sometimes the only thing we have to hold on to is the character of the one who's walking with us. That if God led me into this valley, I'm not here because of sin. I didn't bring it on myself. I didn't do it because of bad choices. All that kind of stuff. If I'm in this dark valley and I've been walking in obedience with Christ, then here's the, here's the reality I'm not walking alone. And I can trust in the character of the one who led me. So, what's his character? We read it last week. John chapter 10 says it very clearly I am the good shepherd. That's his character. He's not just a a kind guy. He's not just a a gentle shepherd. He's a good. At the very essence of who God is, is goodness, is greatness, is rightness, is every sense. So you can rest assured, I can rest assured as I go through these valleys, and I will and you will and we all will, that as I go through them, that there is a good shepherd guiding me. He's not just a good shepherd who's just going to try to hold my hand. Listen, he's willing to lay his life down. He's willing to put himself on the altar. He's willing to take a lot of the pain so I don't experience all of death. I only experience the shadow of death. And we talked about that last week. The idea of the good shepherd is walking with me is such a beautiful picture. At the same time, what it does is it raises my level of trust. Or, if he's not my shepherd, it raises my level of fear. So what's... What's, what grows in your life when you go through the valley? Fear or a greater confidence in God? And it's a constant battle. I know there's no easy one answer to that. But something happens in the, in the, in the life of Christ, our good shepherd. Just before he laid down his life for us, you know what he did? He sat down at a table. Literally, probably reclined at the table the way the Hebrew people would eat food in that day. He sat at a table. He came to a table. A table becomes an important part. What, what happens the very first thing? I call it irony. call it observation. I don't know what you want to call it. But what happens when, when we go to the valley of the shadow of death? What's the very first thing that comes up when we come out of that valley in the very next verse? He prepares a table for me. So we have this whole idea of table Becoming a pretty ironic element, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he's at a table. Right when we come out of the valley of shadow of death, we're at a table. What's this table thing? The table becomes an important part. But let's get some axioms down here that I think are, are pretty important. Some kind of foundational elements. One is that we need to understand and embrace that we have a good shepherd. All right. We have a good shepherd, and by the way, it's not just a philosophy, a theory, an idea, a good book, or a collective wisdom of my friends. Realize the collective wisdom of your friends may fill a thimble when it's all said and done of wisdom. Of all their bad experiences, then they're trying to tell you not to do their bad experiences. And listen, learn from their mistakes. But by all means, don't repeat them, but you need a shepherd, I need a shepherd, and the good shepherd, his name is Jesus Christ. We've got to own that. Number two is that we have a good shepherd who laid down his life for us. He's not just a kind shepherd. He's not just a wise shepherd. He is the shepherd who literally jumped in front of death so that we would only experience the shadow of death. Thirdly, don't miss this one. Our good shepherd wants us to pause. Push pause. Around a table to commemorate the moment. The moment what? The moment that the good shepherd did what he did for us so that the rest of our life as we walk through life, whether it's by a stream or it's in a valley, whether it's by, by, whether he's restoring our soul or we're, we're licking our wounds, we're wrestling with fear, we're wrestling with panic, whatever it is that we would embrace the reality that we are not alone, that we have a good shepherd. A good shepherd died for us so that we could live and we do that around a table again what's this whole table theme jesus before he goes to the cross he goes to the table we come out of the valley of shadow death there's a table prepared for us what's this whole table theme i began to study the idea and the concept of table throughout the old and new testament it's quite interesting here's just a few of them this past week, I, I looked in Psalm chapter 78 and you'll find there when he's referring back to the time that the people of Israel were coming out through the Exodus and you'll find there uh, it, that, that, that they actually were, were longing for God to prepare a table for them. They had been in the wilderness, they had been eating manna, they had just been, eating, which just means what is it? And they were eating it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And you know what they had the next day? Manna, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and so they were tired of that. Do this if you want to experience the life of an Israelite for forty years. Just for one week, eat the same thing, the same bland thing. They were tired. They wanted a full table. They wanted the banquet table prepared for them. This is what it says in Psalm seventy-eight. It says, "Can God spread a table in the wilderness?" Listen. I want, sir, I, I want a real meal. I, I want the real thing. A table comes to the picture. What did Nehemiah do? When Nehemiah became the governor of Judah, the very first thing Nehemiah did in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 17, is he called together 150 people, leaders of Judah, leaders of other nations that were surrounding Judah that could easily threaten the sovereignty of Judah, easily threaten Nehemiah himself. And what does he do? He calls them to A table. A table. Notice again how the table fits in to a picture of coming together. It even poetically speaks of the family. The table does. It says your your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, so literally when your kids are popping up and around, they're like olive shoots, all right? They're literally living out the Psalms. Uh, but no they 're like a table they 're like a, olive shoots around the table. Exodus chapter forty or excuse me Ezekiel chapter forty verse thirty nine It talks about the in the vestibule in the in, in the in the temple, there were two tables where the sacrifices were made table table, table table and I mentioned again that Jesus went to the table before he went to the cross. We go to the table after we come out of the valley of the shadow of death. I want us to focus today on what does that mean, the table. And we come today and we, I want to focus on the table that we have around this room. We have six different tables around this room in the corners of the up front, right here in the center, along the back uh, landing area. There are six tables that all represent one particular meal. That last meal that Jesus took, in the mill that Jesus said He will not take again until His kingdom is established on the earth. It's one of those mills that 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 is forever with the church. It, it was it was it was sanctioned by Christ. It was it was it was it was exemplified by the early church throughout the New Testament, and you find it even in, in the Book of First Corinthians. There's a lot written in, in, in 1 Corinthians. It says as often as you. You eat this bread and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Literally, when you take this wafer, this I'm sorry it is you'll taste it in a minute maybe. Um, but it's stale. It's it's kind of lifeless. It's, it didn't have leaven in there cuz leaven represented sins. It's not fluffy bread. It's it, cuz leaven represents sin. They had to take the leaven out. And so therefore it's just a flat wafer that has holes punched in and lines in it. Because that's how they made matzah bread. That's how they made this bread. Well Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53 that he was not a stately man. And we know that he was pierced for our transgressions. We know that he was, his stripes that he bore, he bore for our sins. So whenever you are given the opportunity in a few moments to take this wafer, I want you to pause and reflect. Take it, step aside, take the cup. The cup represents the blood of Christ. I want you to take it and and just reflect for a few moments. Go back to your seat, come as an individual, go as a family, come as a communitas group, whatever the case may be. You, you might need to do this. Listen, here, I'm going to give you an excuse. You may not even need to do this. This is not talking you into something. This is a time where you reflect on your relationship with Christ. It says in First Corinthians 11:24, it says this, then he had given thanks and he had broken it. He said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. He calls us to pause. He calls us to remember. Also the cup, he said this in verse 25, the very next verse, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It's a time where we pause. I hope you'll pause. Even before taking these elements, you'll pause. And I want us to read one more verse together because it really kind of goes full circle with what we're talking about, this whole table concept. And it's in, in, in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. There's kind of a line in the sand here. This is a meal for believers. And if you are a follower of Christ today, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I pray... Music's gonna be playing, you're gonna be free. You can stay right where you're at and not move. And just spend this time in prayer. This is your time with God. Or when you feel led, if you feel led, you can get up and go to any of these stations. If you're a follower of Christ, and you can take a piece of bread, and you can take a cup, and then just go over to the side, move away from the table, go back to your seat, and just take a moment and just reflect on the table and the suffering of our Christ, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we bow before you. And Lord, the table means so much. Even in our day and age, we gather as family around the table. We talk, we share, we cry, we pray around a table in our home. We spend money on tables and then we sit on couches and watch television and eat dinners. Lord, doesn't make sense. But we're pausing here and now. In the middle of a gathering, not an attack on, not at the beginning, not just take it if you want to as you leave the building, but we're putting it right in the dead center of the service and we're saying, Lord, we're coming to the table and we want to be a follower of you, Lord. We want you to be our shepherd and we're acknowledging you, Lord. And if you're not our shepherd, Lord, give us the boldness and the strength to do some true self-reflection and just stay where we're at. But Lord, if we are your children and we're ready and willing to follow you completely, I pray that that, that people will come. Lord, this is your meal and we are remembering you, anticipating you one day coming again. Thank you for it and what it means. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Around at the tables will be deacons and pastors, and they'll be hanging out there. If you want to pray with someone, they'll be there. All right? Just go, go to them if you want to, or just take the elements. This is your time right now. Father, we say thank you again. and though Lord, we don't understand what you went through, we certainly don't understand the pain. we understand the shame because Lord we brought it on you. We understand the guilt because we put those nails there, we pierced your skin, Lord it was us. And so Lord, we take this this meal today, we come to this table today and we say thank you with all of our hearts. we say thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus name. Amen. The story doesn't end at the table alone. The message and the idea of the Lord being your shepherd brings with it elements that I don't want you to miss. And it's kind of that banquet theme that that. That David is landing on as he, as he finishes up the psalm here. And it's kind of what, what comes with this whole relationship thing. What, what is the fullness factor when it, when it comes to being in a relationship with Christ? And so there's another part of, of chapter uh, 23 that I, I don't want to submit. So it's verse 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows." Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I, I love the ho- whole idea of whenever you come out of the valley of the shadow of death, he, you land at this banquet, maybe it's a Ruth Chris meal, 500 degree plate, steak, all that kind of stuff, and the desserts and the whole nine yards. Maybe that's what it's going to be like. No, I, it's amazing what happens. You have dinner with your enemy. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) He prepares a banquet and invites somebody that probably is the one who sent you to the valley of the shadow of death anyway. Think about it. So here's the the fullness of what it means when the Lord is your shepherd. There is a, a level of serenity that I cannot explain, but it's just there in the midst of troubles and troublemakers. And of course, you're not the troublemaker. All right, it's those other people out there. And don't you love it that all the, you know, life's great if it weren't for the people in the in the world. Then life would be so much better. But he says, I prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. And I, you just need to dwell on that for a little bit because I know for some of you that, that literally was a person that literally did send you to the valley of the shadow of death. That person hurt you, betrayed you, broke trust with you, took innocence away from you, did something to you that to this day, years, maybe decades later, is still rippling through your life and you're having to adjust to. You're having to cope with. You're having to work through the, the pent-up anger with them. How do we handle that level of, uh, of, of turmoil and darkness that's in many people's own souls? outside of a serenity that can only come from God. That he would bring a person that... And I asked you in the beginning of this series of messages... Or actually, I asked you last week, excuse me. I asked you to think of the, the one event in your life that was the darkest valley in your life. And, and I know immediately you could think of one. Then I said, think of another one. And probably we could have stayed here two or three <laughs> days and kind of thought, okay, think of another one, think of another one. But, you know, the first one or two, they come quickly. Because they're so heavy. Now I want you to do one more thing. I want you to think of the, the person in your life that meets that criteria. They're literally, they created inside of you an anxiety, an animosity that you could literally call them your enemy. Now they could be a family member. That's the sad part. If some of the people that we are supposed to love and trust and respect the most are the people who hurt us the most. It could be. It could be somebody that you work with right now. That when you have those team building exercises that make you nauseous and want to throw up, you know, you, you go on them anyway and you sit at the table, but you make sure that you know where they're sitting because you're going to sit at the end of the table because you don't even want to make eye contact with them. They're that level of animosity. How how do you deal with that? How can I sit at a table with somebody who's my enemy and literally have conversation with them? Even if they're still wrong, they're unrepentant, how can I be there? There's a word I'm gonna give you that I want you to go home this afternoon. I want you to look it up. I want you to study it. Now, Google it. Now, there's two places you go for answers in life, God and Google. Sometimes it's God first, sometimes it's Google first. You'll not find this one word I'm about to give you in the Bible, so don't go there. Go to Google on this one. No, start with the Bible most of the time, okay? But it's the word differentiation, all right? Differentiation. And it is the ability to be able to be okay when someone else isn't okay. It's for you to be okay even though that other person is still out there, still wrong, still unrepentant, and you're able to be okay? I absolutely believe, the psalmist is referring to this, that I'm able to pull up a chair next to somebody who's hurt me, hurt me, broke me, whatever, betrayed me, whatever. And I'm able to sit down next to them and it not eat me alive with anger. Not destroy me. But somehow spiritually, somehow supernaturally, God does a work inside of me because he's leading me, his rod and staff are comforting me and guiding me. Somehow in that moment, there's a spiritual experience because he's my shepherd that I'm able to even sit down with my enemies, the people who've hurt me and shamed me and hurt me in ways that we don't even want to go into specifics on. Proverbs chapter 16, verse seven says it like this. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's ways, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. See, my prayer is that you would become the agent of peace that would bring peace to a relationship. Blessed are the peacemakers, it says in Matthew chapter 5. How do you become a peacemaker until you have peace in your soul, until you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, until you can sit down at the table with your enemies and still have peace inside of you? There is no peace. There's only a pretend. There's only a facade. December 1914, nearly a century ago. Might, might as well say a century ago. Something happened in the battlefield of, in, in, over in Europe. Over, I don't know if it was in Germany. I don't know if it was in, in England. I don't know where it was. But this, this battle was taking place between England and, and Germany and World War I was unfolding. And as this is going on, it's Christmas Eve night. And the Germans initiated a conversation with the English-British on the other side of the line. And they did this by baking a German chocolate cake and sending it to the other side. Sending it to the other side. And this is what said in the letter. Would you please, would we please just cease fire for Christmas and just be at peace. For Christmas. Britain said, yeah, let's do it. 7.30 that night, no fire had happened in that day. No nobody killed that day. 7.30 that night, all of a sudden on the other side, the Germans began to sing Silent Night, a song that was first written in German. They began singing it. The Brits began to sing it in English They sang it side by side. They would say amen as one finished and the other finished. It was it was this kind of weird, kind of turmoil, kind of peace moment in in the midst of battle to the point that they laid down their weapons. They walked out of their trenches. They walked and they met each other. There's been photos that were taken of it. They would smoke cigarettes together. They shared stories together. And this is enemies facing each other and stopping for a moment. The irony is overwhelming that this is all around the birthday of the Prince of Peace. If there's anybody in this created order cosmic existence that is out there that can bring peace to the most war-torn areas of our lives, it is Jesus Christ. And when he is our shepherd, he can cause us to be able to sit down at the table with our enemies and it not kill us or them, us them. The second way our life becomes full when the Lord is our shepherd is not only do we have this serenity about us, but we're also, the Spirit's presence is within us. This is that abiding presence. This is that that continuing awareness of of God. Now, he uses it in a metaphor. Again, this is an imagery-rich text. And he uses it by talking about the anointing our heads with oil thing. What's that all about? Well, this is something that is not new in this day. This is something that's actually very much a Hebrew thing, very much an Egyptian thing. The Greeks and Romans adopted it. And it's where basically as you traveled and would go from place to place, if I invited you into my home and you were going to sit at my table and we were going to have a meal together then I would have olive oil with scent and spices and, and fragrances that whenever you came into my home, I would wash your feet, I would wash your hands, you would smell better, you would feel refreshed from your journeys, and it's a beautiful kind of tradition. We obviously don't do that anymore. Um, but here's the point. It was a life-changing kind of feeling moment where even the aroma of the room changed. Even I smelled different, I felt different. That's a part of the imagery. But there's another imagery that happens in the scriptures. And that is that the imagery speaks to the Holy Spirit coming upon us as if He is the one who's anointing us. He is the one changing the fragrance in our lives. He is the one enabling us to smell different and smell life differently. He's the one who's able to give us a perspective on life that we wouldn't have. Where do we see this? We find it in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. You have an anointing. There's the anointing word from the Holy One. The Holy One of God is on you, in you, with you, making life smell better, look better. You smell better. You think life is better. It's because the Spirit of God is on you. When does the Spirit come upon us? He came upon the disciples when Jesus breathed on them. Literally his breath, he breathed out on them in John chapter 20, verse 21. It says, peace be with you. Whoa, don't miss this. We just talked about having peace with our enemies. What does Jesus say? Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that when he talks about anointing us, It's talking about an awareness. It's talking about a real reality that God being with you as a follower of Him. The Lord is your shepherd you shall not want. How does that change your life? It revolutionizes your life because it gives you a serenity with troubled people and troublemakers and troubled situations and whatever word you want to put troubled with because it gives you and a presence of God with you that you wouldn't have otherwise. That's the beauty of the Spirit's anointing upon us. This is what British Baptist preacher, 1800s Charles Spurgeon said. He said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without a wind, chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. The Spirit is that transformative in your life. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Spirit of God wants to work in you. Number three, don't miss this one, please. This comes real personal to me and you'll get it in a moment. There's a sufficiency element. The sufficiency of God's grace and mercy. All of a sudden now when the Lord is your shepherd, no longer do you have to muster up all of life's strengths. No longer do you have to figure all of life out. No, sometimes, I mean, some of y'all are in here right now and, and you're dry and you're feeling dry and you're feeling empty. The person who was sharing with me in the first gathering after the service, the literal words she described herself, she's driving up from Van Buren to attend here. That's how far, that's a pretty far commute, okay? And so she's coming here to church and she's saying this, I am dry. And she gave me the circumstances of her life. I am dry. Some of y'all are so dry, but now in this passage, what does it say? My cup overflows. How does that work out? <laughs> that I can be dry and... Like, see, when you, the Lord is your shepherd, He somehow continues through His Spirit's anointing, through the presence, through the Word, through the church, through the body, through the Word. Somehow, He continues to supply our needs. So many of y'all, I know, I know, I know, I know, I you're, know. You're tapped out. For so many reasons, I mean, there's, there's there's too much month left at the end of the paycheck. Uh, you know, you're so glad the kids are back in school because you don't have to worry about where they're going. But now they've got all these school activities and all this activity, 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 and cost and cost and cost and after school, and you're just like you're tapped out. You're tapped out. You're tapped out in your relationship, your marriage, because you're both working, you're both busy, and you're both demands, and you both have high stress jobs, and and. You just, you just tapped out. When the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. In part, it's because he's going to prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He's going to anoint your head with oil to the point that your cup begins to overflow. And you're not going to operate from a dry, empty, dusty cup, but a full cup. What does that look like? What does that feel like? Because I feel dry. So I've been awake since 1.30 this morning, not by choice, I promise you. But I woke up this morning and immediately, I know when I wake up at 1.30, 2.30, I'm going to have a hard time going back to sleep because my brain starts doing this right here. You may ever struggle with that. Raise your hand. Oh, good. I'm not alone. Not, not good that you, that's true of you, but I'm not alone. Uh, so my brain starts firing. I start thinking, oh, yeah, that, okay, this, okay, that, okay, I need to get ready for that. Oh, man, I'm so far not ready for that. Meetings, problems, issues, whatever it may be, they start, they start just coming into my mind, invading my sleep space. I'm chasing thoughts. I'm chasing ideas. I'm chasing issues. I'm chasing projects. I'm chasing to-dos, things I didn't get done. It's just driving me crazy. 255. I'm tossing and turning in the bed. I remember looking at my clock at 2.55. By that time, I've been mad at myself, and I'm even mad at God. I hate to confess that, but it's true. I'm mad at God. God, don't you realize in 4.30, my alarm's going to go off. I've got to get up. I've got to be rested. I've got to be ready to teach, and, and this is your people. It's your job you called me to, and so give me rest. You know, I'm kind of telling God how I was, okay, I'm half asleep, remember? Well, I'm not half asleep. I'm all awake and by now. 2.55. I look over the clock and forget it. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to back to sleep. I've taken so much melatonin. I can OD on melatonin at this point. (laughs) Um, And so I get up. But I got up when I heard one word from God. The word was sufficiency. I was giving him everything that I was not going to be able to do because I was not getting my rest I was not going to be prepared for this meeting on Monday morning because I was not getting my rest. I was going on and on, and it was like sufficiency. I'll be there, I'm going to meet you at that point of your need. It was like, and you know, by the way, during that whole time of being awake, an hour and a half and laying in bed, I quoted Psalms no less than 50 times. Psalm 23. I was just going, I knew Satan was going to put me to sleep because he wouldn't want me to quote that. And he didn't do it. He kept me awake. And so I just kept, I kept (laughs) quoting it. And it was like, after all these times of going through Psalm 23, Psalm 23, finally, I'm a slow learner, the 50th time, it says, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely, goodness and mercy. And then he took me to this verse right here in my head. It says, my grace is sufficient. Surely goodness, that's the word hesed in in the Hebrew language. That's the most sacred word for a loyal love. Surely goodness and mercy. It's kind of this combination of love and mercy all kind of rolled up in one. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfect in your sleeplessness, in your weakness, in your uh, can't get all your neurons to fire at the same time. You don't remember if you said it in the first service or the second service. And so you're kind of repeating yourself. I'm perfect in those circumstances. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God loves us when we're weak because then he gets to be strong. God loves us when we're broken because then he gets to be the answer. God loves it whenever you have to depend on him for the sufficiency to your life issues because you really get to know him at that point. And there's always just enough of him. John chapter 1 verse 16, for the fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Like there's not enough grace, okay, you need more grace, well, here's more grace. Oh, I love Lamentations. We're going to actually study this passage in our uh, Suffering and Pain series in a few uh, months. It says this. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Oh, wow. You mean I can wake up and your mercies are going to not run out on me? In the midst of a busy schedule, you're not going to, I'm not going to run out? No? No, if I'm your shepherd, there'll be enough mercy. Here's, here's the, don't miss this part. There's always enough mercy and always enough grace and always enough strength to do God's will. Now, if you do your will, that's a different story. But there's always enough mercy. There's always enough grace. There's always enough strength to do his will. And so I'm going to be there for you and I, I'll take care of you. Tom Reed, one of our members of our church, sent me a, a, a funny story, kind of a, kind of a poignant story uh, this past week, and uh, it was about a kid in a Sunday school class that was challenged to, to memorize Psalm 23. In fact, the entire Sunday school class was challenged to memorize Psalm 23, and they all uh, raised their hand, yes, we'll take on that commitment, and hey, by the way, when we're all finished, we're all going to stand on the stage in big church, and we're going to all say Psalm 23 together, and that was big church, it was a little church, and it was a little country church, and so they're all going to take one, one by one. And they're going to say, Psalm 23, even this little boy raised his hand. I'm going to do it. He worked his mind to the nth degree. To get it down, he could never get it down. Sounds just like me. Could never get it down. So he stands up the day that he's supposed to give his Psalm 23 quotation and he says it like this. Then he walks off the stage. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's all I need to know. And he walks off stage <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know you may not get it all down with us, but if you get the Lord is my shepherd right that 's all you really need to worry about because he 's going to take care of that rest he 's going to be that sufficient one he 's going to be the power that you need to get through what you need but let me let me let me land this plane today, and i 'm going to go take a nap, okay <laughs> is there's a fourth kind of robust element, extension, if you will, fullness of, if you will, of life, whenever you uh, allow the Lord to be your shepherd, and that is there's safety in dying. Not, not a fun topic. Not a topic you plan for, for sure. You certainly don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, planning for it. But isn't it isn't it is a little bit ironic that he's talking about life and He's talking about coming out, and he's talking about reconciling or working on work, being with your enemies if you can't reconcile it. He's talking about living this life full and overflowing, your cup's overflowing. And, oh, by the way, you're going to die. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's just an assurance. There was just something, it's okay. Life can end okay. It can end, and it's not final. It's not over. You know, it's, it's really interesting. The two days, the two days... That we have absolutely no control over. Our beginning and our ending are the two days that go on our to- tombstone. We have no control over them, but those are the days that mark our lives. Think about that for a moment. Can I end this? Can this life end and I be okay with it? Be confident that the next life or the continuation of this life in another form, that it's going to be okay. That I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you cannot, please don't leave this building without talking to me, talking to one of our pastoral team. I don't know who they are. Find me. I'll be hanging out in the front. Find Robbie. He'll be hanging out in the front. Find Caleb. He'll be up here in a few moments. We'll be hanging out. Find, Find us. We'll be out there. And say, hey, listen, I don't have that assurance, that confidence. I, I, As a pastor, as a pastor, I think maybe more than a physician who pronounces somebody deceased or a mortician who actually does art in a sense to make life look real when it's no longer there. I think maybe a pastor might deal with death more than anybody else. I can't tell you the number of funerals I've done. I can't tell you the number of times I've stood at the head of a casket and every single time I do the same thing. I look over and I, I wonder, where are they now? Even if I knew them, I wonder, where are they now? Did they have the confidence? Hopefully I've had a conversation with them long before that day because it's a little late at that time. So I'm going to have that conversation with you now. Not that I'll be at the head of your casket. You may be at the head of mine. But I can tell you this. I have a deep assurance that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because when I was eight years old, I gave my life to following Jesus and in an eight-year-old kind of way and growing up as a teenager and in adulthood, I've tried to more and more each day give a little bit more of myself over to Him, fall a little bit more in love with Him, let Him lead me a little bit more, a little deeper, a little wider in life. So my question to you, what about you? Do you have that assurance? If you don't, don't leave here without it. Would you bow your head and just pray with me? Just take a moment in the, in the seat where you are, And if you don't have the assurance, then I pray that you will call out to Jesus, the good shepherd, and ask him, Jesus, I acknowledge you as God, as my shepherd. Would you also be my savior? I call on you. And the beautiful thing is in John chapter one, verse 12, it says, all who call on the name of the Lord, they get to be his children. John chapter one, verse 12, you read it for yourself. So I want you to have that assurance. If you don't, you need to have that assurance. Father God, you know our hearts. You know our enemies' hearts. And some of us will never reconcile with them. And Lord, but help us to be people of peace. Lord, you know our needs and our inefficiencies, incompleteness, our our lack of completeness, Lord. Would you be our sufficient, Lord, filling our cup till it overflows? Lord, would you be the God that anoints us with your Spirit that will never walk another day? Without that aroma of your spirit, reminding us that you're with us and reminding all those around us that you're with us because you're changing us. You're changing the aroma of our lives. Lord, and would you give us the assurance that forever we will be with you? And if not, Lord, today I pray that you will just make very clear to everyone in this room that doesn't have that assurance that, Lord, They can. They need to trust. They need to believe. They need to confess. They need to repent. They need to give themselves to you as the great shepherd. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to do this today. I want to ask some pastoral team members, some prayer partners, just to kind of come hang out at the front here with me because maybe you're here today and you're ready. You're waiting. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, it's spoken to you, and you're like, hey, I am ready for him to be my shepherd. Make that declaration today. We'll be hanging out here at the front. Stand together with us now and sing with us.